My name is Jeff Lerner, and I interview elite performers from a wide range of disciplines, entrepreneurs, athletes, celebrities, scientists, artists, and more. This is Unlock Your Potential. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Unlock Your Potential. Always so excited to be back with you, getting to have amazing conversations with amazing human beings. My name is Jeff Lerner. Did I say that? I'm the host. If you're here, you probably already knew that. Anyway, yes, my name is Jeff Lerner. Welcome to Unlock Your Potential. You know, I woke up this morning like you do. And I said, what do I like? Like, who do I really want to talk to today? Do I want to talk to, you know, like, like a founding executive from one of the fang companies, you know, a pretty elite crew of, of humans over there? Or would I rather talk to somebody who's like more of a rabble rouser, maybe somebody that used to be some kind of like a like a smuggler in Europe or something? And I couldn't really decide. I mean, I think you can understand the the conflict. And then Lo and behold, I looked at my schedule and I realized that uh, sometimes in life, you really do get to have it both ways, which was a very long and clumsy way of introducing our guest here today, Mitch Lowe. He was, in fact, one of the founding executives of Netflix. He's also the creator of Redbox. You've probably seen him. Uh, he also was an executive at McDonald's. He's done a whole lot of stuff. The CEO of MoviePass, super disruptive in the entertainment industry, and did have some very interesting beginnings that I alluded to there in my opener, he also has a brand new book uh, about to come out, which by the time this releases may in fact be out called Watch and Learn. And he's truly one of the most interesting people that I have ever gotten to read about and that I'm now excited to get to talk to in person. Mitch, welcome to Unlock Your Potential. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It's really great to meet you. Yeah, likewise. So excited to have you on the show. Um, I'm not actually 100% sure how we got connected, although I would, I would suspect that it might have come through Mark. Uh, Mark oh, Randolph, yeah. who, who I had on the show maybe a month ago, month or two ago. Mm -hmm. And he was obviously one of the, the uh, early founders at Netflix too. And I don't know, do you happen to know, did he give you uh, give us your name or vice versa? Something like that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. Uh, you know, Mark wrote the foreword uh, to my book. Right. And uh, he has been um, kind of for a long time, a, a true inspiration and teacher to me. And he has been incredibly helpful um, with my book, with the writing, with the, you know, how do I, how do I tell people about it? So I'm sure, I'm sure it came from him. Cool. Well, I'm glad it did. Um, and I'm grateful to him. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure to shoot him a note of thanks. I don't know. Actually, I guess we'll see how the conversation goes and then, right? Right. right. <laughs> but you could say you could have saved me an hour. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I seriously doubt that's that's about to happen. But I, I will say, I mean, just talking to him and now I'm excited to talk to you. I, I really love mm -hmm. what and, and hopefully this is a, a nice opening to get into the 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 meat here. But what I really love about reading about the early days of Netflix and, and for some context, um, We've actually used Netflix as a teaching tool inside of our own company. Um, mm -hmm. So we were, we were sort of into Netflix apocryphal lore before I met you or Mark. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to, to really get to meet the people. But what I love about it is, is it, it, you get the sense that it really wasn't, I mean, it, it's very pure in its entrepreneurial roots from the standpoint of like, it was about the nobility and the integrity of the idea and about doing something better and about the disruption. It really wasn't like, hey, guys, I think I have a hack and we can make $100 billion or something. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, you agree with that? 
Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, I mean, for me, it was uh, just an incredible learning experience. But the biggest thing was that mix of people that came together and really truly had a kind of a vision of doing something really great. It almost, in a way, didn't have a lot to do with the idea. It was how do you create a culture that continues to innovate and continues uh, to do stuff that's fun and cool. It wasn't like we had to, you know, deliver entertainment. It could have been anything. And that was kind of the magic of that group. Yeah. And and reading about it, you know, was was it was it? I mean, I've read about Mark. Obviously, I've read about Reed. I've read about Mark and I've read about you. Like, would you say Mm -hmm. you guys were, were you the three musketeers or were there other parties that were there right there on day one, too? Well, you know, in the beginning, uh, it was really uh, Mark and Reed. You know, um, I was the video guy. I was the guy who knew the video rental entertainment business. I had owned Which, by the way, is kind of funny because, like, the fact that Netflix existed without a guy that knew the video rental entertainment (laughs) business is is funny because that's like the whole business, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. Well, that's what I mean. It was, it could have been any business. Yeah. Uh, The culture was, you know, how do you do something really cool and innovative? This just happened to be, you know, and and Mark has probably told you, uh, you know, he was the VP of corporate marketing for Reed's company, Pure Atria. And mm-hmm. another company had bought them and said, we'll pay you guys your salaries for the next three months, but you're out of a job after that. That, that was the software business, right? That was the software it, business. It came yeah. after the mail order business for Mark. No, no. This was the business that Reed owned before Netflix and right, right. that Mark worked for. And so uh, it was really Mark just coming up with, OK, so what do I do? And uh, just so happened, DVD had just launched uh, about six months before that. And uh, Mark thought, geez, you know, this very light, flexible format could be sent in the mail and, you know, build a really interesting, uh, innovative uh, business. So at the time that that they're doing that, they're driving Mm -hmm. and and actually let's let's back up even further. Yeah. Uh, In fact, you know what? Let's just go right there right away. Okay. Your backstory is like so crazy and interesting and cool. And uh, maybe let's just go there for the audience's benefit. Cause I've been reading about it. I got, I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy of your book. I've been reading about it, but maybe let's let, let everyone hear you talk about it. Like how did you end up being the video distribution knowledge base that they would end up partnering with? What's the journey that got you to that point? Well, it started, um, you know, I was uh, one of those uh, latchkey kids that, um, you know, parent, or my parents, uh, my brother and, and my parents worked till six or seven o'clock every day. Uh, we would come home at three from school and watch TV. And we just became and I became enamored by uh, TV series and movies and so on. So I think everything starts by, you know, my passion for entertainment which is, you know, kind of the not the creative side, but I became really interested in how do you market? How do you get someone to want to see something? What do you tell them about it? So that what what age would you say you got interested in that? Because that's that's kind of a peculiar thing, let's say, for a little kid to think about. 
It was in kind of middle school, uh, you know, junior high. Interesting. So there was like a proclivity there, like some somehow you were primed to be interested in that, it seems. Yeah, I remember, um, you know, watching the ads on TV for things like F Troop or Get Smart or those TV shows. And I just kept thinking, why are you know, why do they show this clip versus another clip? Uh, to get in the advertising, to get you to be mm. interested. And I just found this whole concept of, of trying to, to link the demographics to the content, just a fascinating, you know, interesting thing. And, and uh, but then it kind of left my life for a while. I, I went to Europe. I, I spent some years there and, and it was only when I came back in the seventies. And where where are you from, by the way? Sorry. I'm from uh, Northern California. Um, My father was an aeronautic engineer and we moved, I think 13 times around California uh, based on the job uh, that was going on. Okay. So at some point you went to Europe. Yep. Got into craziness there. And yep. I'll let people read the book, but there's some pretty yeah. crazy stories. <laughs> yeah, I had some uh, interesting adventures. Uh, you know, it was a different age. Uh, you know, there weren't computers. Uh, you know, there was everything was on paper. So it was a, a much freer world. No credit cards, uh, mm-hmm. no Internet. Very, very different world uh, than from today. But when I came back to the U.S., this new phenomena of video stores had just gotten going. This is like the very early 80s. And because of my kind of love for movies and TV shows, I became probably the most valuable customer to the one of the only four video stores in the Bay Area uh, called Captain Video. And these were all, it was still like a mom and pop industry. This was pre-Blockbuster. Yeah, totally mom and pop. Uh, This, there was four stores in the entire Bay Area. And uh, they were very small, but um, uh, doing really people were just like me, had voracious appetites to just, you know, it was almost like you were, you know, a big time director or movie producer. They were the only ones prior to this that could watch movies in their own home, you know, Mm -hmm. when they wanted to watch them. You know, up till then, it was Disney at 730 on Sundays, you know, the Disney movie of the week. And so to me, it just seemed like an incredible uh, liberation. Uh, And unfortunately, I spent all my money renting movies, buying blank tape, recording uh, until I finally realized, you know what, I I have some ideas on how to make the business better. And it was mostly driven by all the problems that video stores in those days had you know, everything was on paper. There was no knowledge, no information on what was renting, who was renting what. And so that's when I uh, started devising this idea of of building a computer-backed system that would rent movies and and be able to give you more analytics uh, to understand what to buy versus just buy whatever you want. Okay, so high school dropout to high school dropout. So talk a little bit. I mean, because you're describing, you know, reasonably sophisticated uh, purview for a, a young person who's like, ah, I'm into renting movies. You know what? Let me mm-hmm. let me spend my spare time figuring out how to optimize this business operation. You're a high school dropout. Like, how do you think you got uh, to the point where that was where your head was at? And, and frankly, how did you get mm-hmm. the skills to have anything to, to offer? 
Yeah, well, I was always um, I think it all came from my dad, but I was always into analytics and math. Uh, He was an aeronautic engineer. And, you know, I remember him teaching me, you know, how to do complex uh, mathematical equations. And so I think I just had a, you know, a natural love and passion for that. And the other side of my family, um, and I didn't realize this till later, but the other side of my family were shoe salesmen and ran uh, shoe shoe, uh, stores in Omaha, Nebraska. And I found that I also had a real passion for working with customers for that kind of one-to-one relation. So I think really the, the thing that led me to Netflix was that kind of passion for the customer and that passion for analytics. And those two things, you know, drove kind of more of a, a deeper, um, uh, you know, kind of building a more sophisticated uh, model to serve the customer with, with entertainment. Can you give me the super quick version of wh- why you ended up dropping out of high school? I <laughs> it was uh, two things. One, I hated people telling me what to do. I yes, hated. I feel you. Sorry. <laughs> Score one for us rebels. <laughs> yeah. And I just over and over again, teachers would tell me something I knew was not accurate. And it would just drive, you know, I remember the last day of school in history. I literally threw my books up to the front desk at the teacher saying, you know, keep your history books. And I didn't say it, but inside I'm going, you know what? I can learn more from reading about history uh, than you can tell me. And so it was that combination, you know, not liking people to tell me what what to do. And also the sense that um, there was a better way to learn. Oh, I love it. I, I've, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, we've we've probably all met lots of high school dropouts, but I'm not sure that I've talked to another person like this who, like myself, literally withdrew themselves from high school as a, as a youth based on intellectual integrity of like, no, I can do better without, I I mean, just not, this is about you, not me, but I'll just share as a, as a connection moment. When, Mm -hmm. when the truancy officer called my parents and said, your son has been skipping school. Uh, We're going to give him a ticket if we see him. And they came to me and said, where have you been? The answer was, I've been skipping class to go to the library because I learn more by reading the books than by sitting yeah. in the classes. So, same you kind of thing. Yeah. You and yeah. I are yeah. very similar. You know, fortunately for me, they couldn't find me in Europe uh, because that's where I went Oh, to so go. you really, you hightailed it. Yeah, I left I and, and went to live with my dad who lived in uh, Munich at that time. But um, yeah, you and I are very similar. It wasn't, it wasn't to not, learn it was to learn better and learn oh, now more. i'm going to make this really cheesy and say learner and low yeah <laughs> perfect wow sorry learner and low okay uh, anyway. it was a musical there yeah exactly. um, <laughs> but but uh you know that all that all um you know the, and this is why i find what you do so fascinating is you know there's you know, if you have a passion uh, for what you do and you work hard at it, uh, then it doesn't matter, you know, what system you use. It's really it's figuring it out yourself or or at least finding an acceptable system for learning or advancing, mm-hmm. you know, what you want to do in life, which I think is super important. 
Yeah. Well, no, well said. Well said. So, um, so I'm, I'm loving it, by the way, that your story is like not only inspiring and validating for me personally, but I think for the audience, you know, I don't care if somebody's 15 or 55, there is that moment when you say, I think I can, I think my life can be more if I unplug myself from the matrix, so to speak. Yeah. Right. And that's what I want people to capture from this moment. Not like, oh, it's too late. I should have done it in high school. Yeah. Um, but uh, so anyway, please then pick up the narrative. So, so you started uh, focusing on analytics and data and how to create a better mm-hmm. operational and user experience for video stores and kind of where we go yeah. from there. Yeah. So, so I had developed this um, uh, uh, company uh, along with one of the co-founders of a company called Autodesk, which is a CAD system, a very sophisticated mm-hmm. uh, software company. It was the beauty of, of owning video stores is that you met all kinds of cool people who would come into your store, talk movies. And we devised this company that put video stores on the internet. This and what, is 19- what, what year, what, around what year was this? This is 1995. And, so, and the Bay, at this point, the Bay Area is now a hub of technology and innovation, right? Just begin, just beginning. I mean, it's, okay. you're right. It's, it's uh, I mean, Google hadn't been founded yet. Right. Uh, you know, was of course Apple was around, but but very small. Uh, it was um, so we had developed this company uh, that had a menu-driven program to put uh, uh, video stores on the internet, internet or any stores. Remember, at this time, Amazon was advertising on the radio. You know, the way they were getting because their radio ad was, uh, "We have more books than could fit on the Queen Mary." And, uh, you know, they had not yet gone beyond Bush. So which meant they were also targeting people that knew what the Queen Mary was. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> right. If you're in California, you kind of knew. But okay, uh, so I was exhibiting this product at a trade show in 1997 in Las Vegas. And that's where I met Mark Randolph. Mark, Mark and I have slightly different versions on exactly what happened in this meeting. But uh, he came up to my booth. I was promoting, you know, this uh, internet product. Uh, he clearly was not a potential customer, and uh, uh, but he was asking all these really interesting questions. His main question was, "Okay, so DVD has just come out. Do you think it would go through the post office and and survive?" And I thought, mm-hmm. why in the world would someone ask that question? And then he would ask questions like. Do you think customers would rent on the internet, would pick their movies on the internet and have them mailed to them? And he knew that at that time, not only did I have this company, but I was president of the trade association of uh, video retailers around the country. Mm. And uh, I was also the head of the, the whole trade show that he was attending, which was a big show in Las Vegas. So um, I just I just knew this guy had something up his sleeve that he wasn't telling me about. Uh, and in my recollection is he started walking away and I grabbed him by the neck. Uh, he had a backpack on and, you know, you get a lot of leverage when you hold someone <laughs> at that point. And I pulled him as he's walking away, of course. And I said, wait a minute, you haven't even given me your name or phone number. Uh, and he ended up giving it to me and we started meeting 
on a regular basis halfway between where he lived and where I lived, which was about 60 miles from each other. Mm. And that's where uh, this whole idea of, of uh, a mail order uh, DVD rental store uh, came from. Wow. Okay. Man, such a, such a cool story. Um, okay. So, so then, yeah, I'm, I, God, there's like, if we had 12 hours, I could probably get through a decent amount of the questions I have in my mind and things to talk about, but I, I know we have to be more concise than that. So I'm going to try to be discerning, like, like talk to me a little bit about, maybe, maybe I'll ask you this. I mean, how long were you with Netflix from inception? Oh, to I was, whenever? I was um, the head of business development for five years. Five years. Uh, so uh, I left uh, the year after we went public. So we went public. You know, we were trying to go public in April of 01, a very auspicious uh, month when uh, the dot com bubble burst. And we had to pull that um, mm. uh, uh, going public. Uh, and then a year later, in May of '02, we went public, and I left in uh, uh, February of '03 uh, as an employee. But then Reed uh, brought me back as a consultant to explore expansion into Europe and Japan. Interesting. And okay, are, is it is it fair to ask? Or, um, and, and frankly, are you allowed to talk about like what were the reasons why you left at that time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, <laughs> it wasn't something I wanted. I, you know, bottom line, uh, Reed let me go, uh, fired me. Mm. And uh, I remember, um, it, you know, these are really uh, sad moments. He uh, asked me to go out to the parking lot with him. And uh, he said, um, you know, Mitch, uh, now that we're public, and, and this is like a, it's been like nine months since we went public. He said, you know, I just don't think you're going to cut it in a pub in a business that is public. Yeah. And I asked him why. And he said, well, because and by the way, Mark had just left. Mark had left two or three months before. Yeah, I, I knew he left around the same time. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He left in November of the previous year. Mm -hmm. And I asked him why. And he said, well, you know, you are a rule breaker. You know, you're constantly trying things without, you know, kind of thinking them through, you know, going through the organization, getting approval. And, you know, you're just constantly uh, trying things. And, you know, we have to be more methodical. We have to be kind of more by the book, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, but listen, you are you know, an amazing, amazing innovator. So we would like you to stay on as a consultant uh, to go to Europe and go to Japan and and come back and tell us, should we expand there? Uh, so it was it was kind of earth shat, you know, it was kind of yeah. very disappointing. And I was hurt a lot. Uh, I also said to myself at that po moment, I'm going to prove you're wrong. I'm going to, I, you know, in fact, my whole time, uh, which was another was eight years at Redbox and McDonald's was essentially to prove I could work and I could be um, valuable in a big public company yeah. uh, environment. And uh, it, it, you know, his firing of me uh, was an incredible motivator. 
Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm really glad I asked and, and, and I'm asking for very self selfish or at least self-interested reasons um, mm-hmm. because it's interesting. And I think for everybody listening, there is, there's, there's phases uh, to business and, you know, and there's, and there's role evolution and personality evolution and different personalities, mm-hmm. sort of personality archetypes that fit at different phases and so yeah. like you and I, we've already kind of identified a certain likeness, right? We're, right. we're, we're rebellious. We have problems with authority. We, if we don't want to go to high school, we just quit. We quit going. <laughs> right. And, right. and it's interesting because my business right now, we're, we're aggressively pushing, you know, toward, uh, about an, a nine, you know, kind of, we, you know, you have these milestones, right. And right now we're pushing uh-huh. toward a nine figure, you know, hundred million dollar revenue rate. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we're getting big enough that, yeah, we're starting, we're starting to be a big company and we're starting uh-huh. to talk about things like, Hey, we could go public something. I mean, we've had people approach us. Like, like we actually yeah. had somebody last year courting us to build a roadmap to get listed on the Canadian stock exchange, go public there. And then eventually you can leapfrog to the NASDAQ. And like, we're like having all these conversations and I'm sitting here kind of like going, I, I'm not, I've, I've, I'm 43. I spent my whole life making sure that I never had to, I never had to be that accountable to anyone. Uh And now I'm talking about potential, you know, if that were to happen, I would suddenly be accountable to like everyone, like shareholders and a board. And, you know, I remember when we started a, a a department, we we have a GRC department, right. Uh, Or RGC Uh risk governance and compliance. And I'm like, yeah, we have, yeah, we have a yeah, rich yeah. governance and compliance department. They're going to tell me what to do someday, even though they work for me. Yeah. And so it's just interesting to hear stuff like that. Now, I don't want, again, I don't want to make this well, about me, but like, this is so interesting to me. Um, and so tell me like, so that happened and you said, okay, I'm yeah. going to prove them wrong. Clearly you did like, talk about that though. Like what, talk about the <laughs> internal process though, before we get into the business stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the first part is, is, um, you know, it's painful. Uh, you know, I gave, you know, gave my heart and soul uh, to Netflix. I, you know, I contributed all I possibly could, you know, for because I was the guy who knew the video rental business. Uh, I brought Ted Sarandos on when Reed wanted me to move to L.A. to run content. I couldn't do it. So I brought Ted in. Ted you know, arguably today is the most powerful guy in Hollywood. He was my video store rep. You know, he was the guy wow. who used to come to my. Uh, he, he runs he runs the studio side, right? Isn't he involved in the he, studio? He side now is the CEO of uh, uh, Red of uh, uh, Netflix. Oh, okay. So he did he replace Reed when Reed stepped yeah. down from that? Well, okay. what happened is so first he was hired as the SVP of content. Uh, so he was running all the studio acquisition and so mm-hmm. on. And then uh, about a year or so ago, he became co-CEO with Reed. And, and I believe, I mean, at that time, really, Reed stepped back. And whether it's whether it's official or not, you know, Ted is really the CEO okay. uh, uh, today. But the um, so first it was like a lot of emotional stuff. And then I thought, you know what? You know, Reed was probably right. And that challenge uh, kind of made me think, you know what? I'm going to try and see if I actually can learn how to operate within a public environment. And and I started, you know, just exactly what you're mentioning about the uh, risk 
departments, the legal departments, the finance departments. I thought, you know what? I can learn all that stuff. Yeah. All I need to do is to jump in and surround myself with people who know a lot more than me. And I actually became really fascinated and a, and a you know, avid student of it. I, I found myself uh, borrowing copies of the Harvard Business Review. Is, isn't from- big business just fan- fascinating? Oh, God. Yeah. It's I mean, the, the it's, anatomy of an organization of a large mm-hmm. like a, I mean, bigger than me, like 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 that size to me, it's yeah. every bit as interesting as the anatomy of a human body. And it's that complex, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I. it's um, it actually I found it. I found the human side of it really fascinating. And I I really screwed up. Uh, you know, in the very beginning, I was good. I motivated. I built a great team of people. I'm, I'm talking specifically about Redbox, which okay. was initially owned by McDonald's. And then uh, half of it was sold to Coinstar. And then eventually, you know, we outgrew everybody. We um, when I came in, uh, I was uh, chief operating officer, but we did thirty nine thousand dollars in revenue the first year. But as that's we grew, it, I want everybody to hear that for a sec. Redbox year one, $39,000 in revenue, $39,000. We had six kiosks in Bethesda, Maryland. Okay. Uh, and when I came on, you know, the the my objective, what I was tasked to do was figure out what the business model is that can that can drive more frequency to McDonald's restaurants, because the whole idea was if we rent DVDs at McDonald's, uh, remember we're wholly owned by McDonald's at this time. When you return the movies, you you will come back, you'll smell the burgers and fries, and you'll create an incremental transaction. Um, uh, whose idea find- was that to to turn McDonald's locations into distribution hubs for movies? The the it started, you know. In the 10 years prior to that, McDonald's had done very well um, these one-off deals selling uh, movies to customers, like in their Happy Meal. Mm. You might get a coupon for a $5 movie, or you might get a copy of a movie with various programs going on. So they, so McDonald's as a corporate entity knew they could, that their customers loved movies. And um, around uh, 2002, McDonald's had their first declining year-over-year sales. Mm. And their uh, president, uh, I believe his last name was Greenberg, was a very innovative guy. And he uh, invited a bunch of people from all over the world, from the McDonald's organization, from Australia and Germany and France, uh, to get together in in uh, Washington D.C. and brainstorm on how to reinvigorate uh, sales. Uh, this is where they came up with the healthy choices menu. Uh, they um, had this idea to put Wi-Fi uh, cell towers in the Golden Arches, uh, and mm. one of one of their uh, real estate uh, developers in France, uh, believe it or not, his name was Jean Doe. Uh, uh, said, you know, what if we rent movies? You have to return them, and we'll they'll, like I said, smell the burgers and fries, and we'll create another uh, transaction. So it was his idea, and they thought, okay, let's put three or four people together and 
Let's try to do that. They came to us at Netflix when I was still at Netflix and tried to get us at Netflix to help them build that business because they recognized that they didn't know anything about it and they knew Netflix did. And I thought it was a great idea. You know, back in the early 80s, I had done a vending machine business uh, that failed miserably. But Reed and Mark and everybody at Netflix uh, uh, didn't want to touch McDonald's with a 10 foot pole. They thought this is not the brand. I was going to say, was it just a brand quality issue that it's like a kind of a tackier, more of like a low rent brand in their mind? Yeah. 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 They were like McDonald's avoiders. Um, you know, like it wasn't good food. And uh, and so uh, the, this whole idea was that I was tasked with was how do you build a business model in a kiosk that is kind of like a video store, but actually creates uh, momentum? So, uh, you know, I just I realized what these guys were doing with the six kiosks they had was they were trying to be they were trying to take one business model and and not change it and put it in a different environment, which consumers didn't want. Consumers, you know, in a video store, you want to browse, you want to talk to people, you want to look at a big selection. In a kiosk, you want a, you know, immediate uh, a determination of what you want. You don't want to browse. You don't want to shy. Right. You want an obvious choice. So yeah, typically, be- if you think of the kiosk business, it's almost mm-hmm. like, one product per kiosk. Like if you go to a mall, you have 10 products, 10 kiosks. Yeah. I mean, the more you have, uh, the harder it, in fact, you you suppress consumption by giving too many choices. And so that's what I did. I started experimenting. I had a big selection. I had a small selection. I had low pricing, high pricing in front of the store, inside the restaurant. And I finally came up with this model that was a dollar a night, a very limited selection, right as you walk in the door of the McDonald's and the business just took off. I mean, it went from six rentals a day or 10 rentals a day to 60 rentals a day. And so, and just to be clear, that that 10X multiplier effect came simply by tweaking the user experience at the kiosk. So it was literally like at the yeah. software level, you just changed it and it, and it blew up. Yeah, it was, I, you know, I look at these things like um, three legs of the stool. The customer is looking for value. Like, is this so, you know, price uh, and looking for in this environment, very simple selection, like, you know, don't give me 200 choices, you know, give me a couple dozen and I and and not stuff that's hard to decide if I like it, but you know the big hit blockbusters, super low price, and the third stool was where you are right in front, right when you walk in the door. Hmm. So when those because when I had a small selection, and inside the store and a low price, it didn't work. When I had a a big selection and a low price, but in front of the store, it didn't work. It was when all three of those things uh, were together in front of the store, a low price and a limited selection. That's wow. when it took off. God, that, that is such a lesson for those of us, you know, entrepreneurial types that have an idea, try an idea, evaluate mm-hmm. the idea, 
but don't necessarily iterate the idea or ask the deeper question about why the, we got the feedback that we did. Cause you could have stopped yeah. at two legs of that stool and just told your guys, sorry, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I find this over and over again is that especially with a consumer product, you know, you have to hit, you have to hit it on all three of those legs of the stool. You and know, so, you so would you say that you've extrapolated from this a, a, a broader formula that we you apply to business as a whole? I think so. You know, the the it's I wish it was this. I wish it was simpler. But uh, knowing which what is the leg of the stool, yeah. uh, you know, what is the right variable? But what it means is you have to set up environments where you can properly test all these kind of different variables in different um, kind of combinations. So, so and, in this environment, the, the three variables were price, selection, and location. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there was, you know, there's some minor variables as well. The merchandising, you know, big, big artwork versus small artwork. But, but those were the three big, big. And, and what's interesting is to some degree, I wonder how much of it, like if you had been trying to put up, Red bar or, or, you know, DVD rental locations in a different environment, mm -hmm. if those three variables might have been different, but because it was in the context of a McDonald's, which is itself about price selection and location. Yep. You had to check those same boxes to match the environment. True. Absolutely true. And some of some things are true, whether it's McDonald's or anywhere, and that's uh, speed and ease of transaction. Right. Um, you know, the the you'll always see if you go by a McDonald's, um, you'll see people sometimes standing out front with stopwatches measuring how long it takes to go through the drive through, how mm. quickly people make change. And it's that I found to be something that's true in any transaction. You know, I was at Hertz. You're saying that's McDonald's testing themselves, testing themselves. So okay. it was usually the owner uh, checking his team. Mm. But if you almost any business you go to today, the longer they take and the the kind of the stupider of the process, the stupider ideas of the process, like. Why do you keep needing to know my name? You have, I have an account, you know, why, right. why, do, why do I have to fill out paperwork? You have all my information. Uh, those things I think are, are things that as a, as a, a business, every, every time you can get rid of like steps that are a waste of the customer's time, the bigger your business uh, can be. And I, I find those variables all the time. Yeah, we're actually it, it going through right now in Entra. Uh, we're starting to run tests of our funnel, our, mm -hmm. our front end customer acquisition funnel, where we got rid of, we've gotten rid of all the upsells. Like we, uh -huh. we typically have, you know, there's a, a tripwire course that's, you know, like depending on the, the ad, seven bucks, 39 bucks, it's a low cost, right? And uh -huh. then we have like, hey, would you like to add this and this? And, you mm -hmm. know, it's great. You get some revenue out of it but we're starting to test it without the upsells because the upsells just, it simply delays the time from the purchase yeah. to the consumption. And yep. what we're finding is so far, and I mean, it's, it's, it's a small sample size, but what we've found so far is that even getting rid of revenue producing intermediate steps that, mm -hmm. you know, actually give up revenue. Yep. We're seeing better user experience, more consumption, more engagement, and ultimately more repeat business or back end purchases 
because yep. we just made it faster and easier up front, e- yeah. even to our own expense. Yeah. It's over and over again. I see like when you remove friction from the transaction and the relationship with a customer, uh, the stronger that long-term relationship is and ultimately the more revenue uh, you generate. But you're right. Sometimes you have to give up in order to get, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that longer term revenue. And that's, yeah, that's hard. That's a hard decision. That's interesting. So I, I want to go further. Uh, I have questions about Redbox, MoviePass, mm-hmm. so much. But but I wonder yeah. if we could actually back up a step mm-hmm. to I, I'm really fascinated. And, and I'm always thinking about the audience. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and where they're at. And the reality is. I have an audience that's largely entrepreneurs or at least very entrepreneurial, which means at any given time, the majority of them are probably in some stage of getting their butt kicked Mm -hmm. because that's what we do as entrepreneurs, right? There's always something kicking our butt. So I'd like to talk about the moment when Reed kicked your butt in the parking lot, Mm -hmm. told you something you didn't want to hear and how you were able to you talked about it, but maybe you could talk more deeply about converting that into the fuel that became your next chapter. Hey there, sorry to interrupt the show, but I just have a quick favor to ask. So we recently broke into the top 100 podcasts in the entrepreneurship category. We've been hovering around 75 and we're really trying to push up into like the top 20 and grow the impact of the show. So if you enjoy what we do here and you're a supporter, the biggest thing you could do to help would be to leave us a positive review. Uh, Whatever platform you're listening on, you should be able to leave a quick review. Let the world know what you like about the show. Thank you so much for your time and uh, let's get back to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's... um... Those, you know, those types of uh, motivations, you know, I mean, in in a very crass way, it was to prove Reed was wrong. Uh, It wasn't for my own. Is it fair to say, though, that in order to prove that he was wrong to a certain degree, you had to accept that he was right? Yes, absolutely. And he was right. Yeah. And I and I that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. You know, it is absolutely true is the. The only way you can improve is by accepting that, hey, you know, maybe you do, maybe you aren't, you know, as good or as smart as you think you are. Uh, and, and, and so really what it came down to is what did I need to learn? And in order to be a leader of a company, which was what I wanted to be what I wanted to be. I, you know, I admired Reed. I wanted to be as good as he was. And so, you know, in order to do that, what I had to do was I had to surround myself with really smart people, with people Mm -hmm. who I could learn from, uh, like Mark Randolph. I mean, Mark Randolph for me at, at Netflix was an amazing inspiration. And at Redbox, that's what I started doing. I started trying to figure out how do you how do you build a team around you that is smarter than you, but at the same time willing to teach you, willing to to kind of you know be a a, a group, a team uh, that wants to win together as opposed to uh, win on their own. You know, be the star. And, and would you say what would you say is the critical? characteristic that you have to develop in yourself and also has to be perceived by them for them yep. to not, o- not only 
you know, for them to actually, like you said, want to teach you and, and trust you enough to feel safe enough to not yeah. just be about themselves. That was the hardest thing for me to figure out. And, and I was failing at it miserably over the first couple of years. I got a lot of great people to work with who were doing amazing work, but we weren't working kind of as, as when things got difficult, it, you could see the team breaking apart. What the philosophy I was operating on was treat everybody the same and show that I'm willing to work as hard as they are. That's mm -hmm. what I thought would build that kind of, you know, comradeship and that kind of teamwork. Which seems like a very reasonable thing to think. Yeah, it seemed totally logical, but it wasn't okay. working. It wasn't working yet. It, you know, it was working while things were going great. But when when challenges happened, you know, there was a point in time where um, the uh, Americans with disability uh, groups uh, sued us at Redbox because the, our touchscreen was four inches too high. Mm. By that time, we already had thousands of kiosks out there. And, you know, it's a metal box. What are we going to do to fix right. it? Um, and we had all kinds of other issues. Um, there was a class action lawsuit for $600 million because they said our dollar a night, no late fees ever. That dollar a night was actually a late fee. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, so uh, I ended up uh, hiring an organizational psychologist uh, in Chicago, a brilliant guy. And he sat me down and said, you know, you're treating everybody the same and you're assuming everybody wants the same thing out of their life. They, you know, but he said, that's wrong. That is absolutely the wrong way to build a team. You have to care enough about each of the people you work with to learn what's important to them and to help them get it. Some people, as examples, he said, some people want more money. Some people want more respect. Some people want more time. But whatever it is, you need to find out what they want and build that opportunity for them to get that when they do a great job as a team member. And that one thing, mm. taking that lesson and, and really taking the time to learn kind of personally what each of the the people who I worked with, what they really wanted out of life, and then figuring out how to give them the opportunity to get that. That's what changed everything. And, you know, at that point, we went from being a couple hundred million dollars a year in revenue to three years later, a billion and a half uh, dollars in revenue uh, with 300 million in free cash flow. And it was it was mm. that and it was of, simply shifting your perspective from I'm going to treat everyone the same, which because I think that's fair to yeah. I, I'm going to treat everyone. It's kind of like being a parent, right? I'm actually going to get to know what makes my kids different. Yep, exactly. Um, it, even even to the degree that it could be described as unfair, like, oh, well, you're treating them differently. And it's like, yeah, because I've gotten to know them and they are different fundamentally. Right. Exactly. So I'm going to I'm going to interrupt us. But in editors, you don't need to edit this out. But whoever ends up editing this, please note the timestamp when Mitch shared that particular insight and send it to me so that I can share it with our executive team, because that's a billion dollar lesson. Thank you, Mitch.
My pleasure. I like to, yeah, I like no, to, I like was... to use this as, you know, use these, this content in as many different ways as I can. Right. So this is going to be a, a <laughs> repurpose tool. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, thank you for that. That's brilliant. So, um, you know what, can we jump? I know we, we don't have a ton of time left and I actually yeah. would like to jump ahead to movie pass. Yeah. If we could, because, uh, and, and I want you to contextualize what I'm about to say, but it wasn't a fabulous success for like movie passes. still, it's not around anymore. Right. No, no. It's, so it, I, you know, the original founders are trying to resurrect it, but yeah, okay. we went into bankruptcy in uh, early 2020. Okay, cool. So, but yet at the same time, I mean, it, it did kind of take off, right? I mean, I, I, I read a number like 3 million subscribers in less than a year or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, what, what's the story there? Well, the, you know, the idea um, and the thing that was really driving me was to do the same thing for cinema as Netflix did for home entertainment. Um, you know, this whole idea of having to make a la carte decisions for your what you wanted to watch, what you were willing to spend money on, really uh, suppressed um, people's interest in discovering you know, new movies or new TV shows. So by creating a subscription, what I thought we could do was to get people back to the cinema to see films that normally they'd wait uh, for on Netflix. And, you know, my passion was around independent filmmakers who just absolutely desperately want people to see, uh, you know, this work that they've created on the big screen. And, you know, in a social environment, you got people around you and so on. And so this whole idea was built around that vision. And what I found is that uh, the industry, the cinema industry or the theater industry is just this very archaic uh, group of people who are totally beholden to the studios. The studios essentially dictate, pri dictate uh, price. Unlike everywhere else in the world, uh, you you pay the same thing to go see a Marvel movie as you go to see an independent, you know, small documentary at the movie theaters. And that's all because, you know, the studios essentially force theaters to charge the same price. Hmm. And and so what I thought we could do is reinvigorate that. What I really failed to do, and in fact, in my book, uh, one of the the second movie pass chapter is is called how I forgot everything I lear ever learned. <laughs> and, you know, what I realized is you when you're building a business that uh, disrupts some big industries, you have to spend a lot of time building allies. And I failed to I failed in a lot of ways at uh, movie pass. But one of the big ones was uh, building enough allies uh, you know, to get us through the tough parts. Hmm. Um, and well, you said it, it folded in spring in 2020, right? Yeah. In January of 2020, but it had kind of collapsed uh, the year. You can't before. blame it on the, the pandemic. No, no, it was before okay. the pandemic. Okay. Interesting. Cause yeah, I mean, it is fundamentally a great idea. I mean, you know, it's like, hey, honey, do you want to go to the movies? Well, you know, it's I mean, like you, you say, actually, they're kind of expensive, right? Um, well, we yeah, we had so many people write us and say, um, you know, uh, you've this has reinvigorated our romance. Yeah. My wife and I are going on dates again, going to movies. We had 
people who who said now we've changed our book club into a going to the movies every Friday club and mm. uh, and you know and and independent filmmakers were just you know loving it uh, you know we were in some cases buying twenty percent of the movie tickets for uh, small box office films uh, even though it was only six percent uh, nationwide of all all tickets uh, sold so. Um, but, you know, it's it was a great example of not remembering all the lessons I had learned and that all of us as entrepreneurs learn and applying them in a fast moving environment. Well, that's that's probably a great segue um, because and, and I have not finished your book, but well, I was fortunate to get an advanced copy and I, I got through a decent chunk of it. And it is really uh-huh. fantastic. Um, Thank you. As somebody who recently published a book and knows what goes into that, like, you know, kudos, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, and it helps to have, you know, I think the, the precondition for writing a great book is to have a lot of great things to say, right? So the life you've lived certainly helped, but, um, but that's, I think that's a good, a good kind of cliffhanger, frankly, like how Mitch forgot everything he learned along the way. Uh, and if you want to go learn everything Mitch knew and then forgot, like, get you know the book maybe talk a little bit about the book it's it's coming out soon uh depending when this gets published it may be out but um how can people get it and then and then actually more broadly how can people come learn more about you well it yeah it comes out on september 6th uh it's published by hachette uh you know i'm real excited about it just because uh i do think that there's some stories in there that I think many entrepreneurs will recognize and and go, yep, I, <laughs> that I'm I'm facing that same problem. And and I try to tell the stories in a, you know, in a kind of a regular way. I'm not preaching to anybody. I'm not trying to tell you this is how it's done. Uh, you know, I'm just giving some examples that I think are, you know, just allow allow individuals to process and and learn on their own. And uh, so, you know, that's it was a a really exciting and like, you know, a very difficult uh, challenge to 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 write it in such a way that, um, you know, made sense and flowed. Uh, So it's really it's it's called Watch and Learn How I uh, Turned Hollywood Upside Down at Netflix, Redbox and MoviePass. And it's a lot about the entrenched uh, leaders of of industries that aren't open to innovation because, you know, the big companies like Disney and others, they should have developed Netflix, um, you know, United, you know, Hertz should have developed Uber uh, you know, and, and Hilton should have developed uh, Airbnb. But it's it's but, really I mean, Blockbuster had a chance at Netflix for 50 million dollars, too, and they still could. They did. They did. And and it's but it's a great it, you know, I think it's um, for all of us entrepreneurs that see a problem and try to solve it by creating a new product or service. That to me is the most exciting thing about today's world, because yeah. it used to be you needed lots of money and a big organization to start a company. Uh, today, you can, you know, virtually do it with an idea and a couple of people. And that's that I think is uh, makes the I mean, every day you turn around and someone's creating something cool and new. Yeah, well, I I am eager to finish the book and probably reread it. I feel like 
in a lot of ways, that is what myself and, and our business Entra, that's kind of what we're doing with the educational industry. Yeah. Um, it's just a, a better way to teach people the right, the, the, the more relevant, more correct stuff that gets them further based on what they want, not what we want. You know, what the education system wants is to produce employees for jobs for the companies right. that make the alumni donations that subsidize it. But what yep. people want is just to live a happy life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like we're and trying to teach them how to do that. And, but you're right. There are so many, uh, you used a, a word in your book, sclerotic, you know, that hardened, <laughs> rigid, unyielding tissue reference that I, it, I was like, that's it. That's what I feel about the education industry. It's sclerotic. It's like, yeah. why yeah. are these people so stuck in their ways? But it's, you know, it gives us lots yeah. to talk about. Right. Yeah. Well, it's so awesome that that's what you're doing is, is you took a problem you saw and you're figuring out a better way or at least an alternative way for people to learn. And uh, that's what well, we all I would go do. so far at, at risk of, of, you know, overreach. The whole concept of this show about unlocking people's potential. I, I think that, and maybe we can end with your commentary on this statement. I think it is very difficult for people to discover what they're truly capable of in this world if they don't have a big enough adversary. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. The, you know, over and over again, I've seen where uh, that challenge of overcoming an enemy, overcoming, you know, uh, kind of a challenging situation uh, where that is the inspiration. And a lot of times, you know, people don't rise to the occasion. Uh, I myself have had several times in my life where I've just thought I can't do that. But that's where kind of true, you know, innovation and, and kind of making a great life comes from is like overcoming those challenges or adversaries. That's, uh, that's, that's the beauty of life. Yeah. It's almost like life is your the ultimate quality of life will be determined by what you get in the habit of doing right after you say you can't do something. Yeah. Yeah. Very well put. Very huh. well put. Okay. So, so uh, you talked about the book, how else can people come find you in the world? Not, not physically per se. But. Well, yeah, I have a website. It's uh, mitchlode.net. Uh, I have, uh, I give speeches um, around the world. My agent is bigspeak, bigspeak.com. Uh, I am excited to always help uh, startups and entrepreneurs. So, you know, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or any of the social media sites. I'm always, always fascinated by people trying to create a new product or business. Um, it doesn't have to be a paid position. I'm People can always uh, reach out to me and ask me for advice. I'm, I'm, I never say no. Uh, and because uh, I'm just so fascinated by, you know, people's uh, challenges. Wonderful. What a, what a, a kind perspective to, to have in this world. Well, Mitch, this has been great. I, I thank you so much. I've learned so much. Um, even without the, the billion dollar tidbit that I'm going to make every one of my team listen to, this has just been a delight. So thanks for being a guest. Hey, it's Jeff here. If you liked this episode of Unlock Your Potential, it would mean so much if you would like and share the episode on whatever platform you're listening or viewing on. And if you really like what we're doing here and you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review. 
There is so much work that goes into these episodes and you leaving a positive review lets us know that that work is reaching people and especially it helps us reach other people. Your review could be the reason that someone else decides to tune in, check out this podcast and unlock their potential and ultimately level up the quality of their life. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support and for listening, especially if you like or share or leave a review. Thank you for helping us spread the word and thank you for unlocking your potential to go make the world and your world a better place.